Hello, welcome to Monday's Shooting the Shit. We are here for a very special episode today because we are going to talk about the various waves of feminism and we have got three generations of feminists, four feminists, but three generations because Hannah and I are technically the same generation. So we have a baby boomer, a millennial and a Gen Yer who are going to talk to us about the second wave third wave and fourth wave of feminism. What they all mean, what the difference between them is, what each one achieved, and why the bloody hell we're still having this bloody conversation 40 years further down the line. So, first of all, Hannah Weinhold. What's your name and where do you come from? Hello, I'm Hannah Weinhold. I am from Grow Traffic. Okay. And what, what, uh, what wave of feminism was yours? Well, I like to think this one, fourth, but I suppose I grew up during the girl power era, which um, I suppose does shape you in some way. Um, and the whole you know, women's sexual liberation and pinching Prince Charles's bum. And honestly, it does make me die a little bit inside. Uh, yeah, I do remember you had the, um, the Spice Moving on. Album, yeah, and I remember you shouting, girl power on the landing. <laughs> so, yeah, third wave is uh, is firmly yours. So, Auntie Jennifer, I shan't call you Auntie Jennifer throughout. I shall call you Jennifer. I shall try and remember. Uh, what's your name and where'd you come from? My name's Jen Becker. <laughs> Only known as Auntie Jennifer to a very few people. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of weird courtesy title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's our actual auntie. We're not That's just very auntie, respectful. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm a retired tax inspector, did legal training, and I've been a feminist for as long as I can remember. And I guess the wave that I'm here to represent is the second wave. Although I would point out that when we were doing it, we didn't know it was the second wave. We just thought we were feminists. <laughs> Yes, yeah. uh, that is something I'd like to to ask you actually, because I think I think this this waves things that we've now got. We have to give it each bit, uh, each uh, period a specific label. Seems uh, very odd. I really wish it all to be feminist, but we will come on to that. So thank you. And Chloe, what's your name and where do you come from? I'm Chloe Kerwin. I'm also from Grow Traffic, and I am a fourth wave feminist, I believe. So I've wow. been told. You are our little baby, aren't you? I am the baby of the group. How old are you, Chloe? 24. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, thank you. And um, I'm Rachel, so I also, uh, well, born 1981, so I am just a millennial. I think I just got straight mm, Just, through. yeah. Just, um, and yeah, third third generation feminism was my era, the, the, the noughties and, sorry, the 90s and the noughties. Um, but yes, I, I would like to perhaps distance myself from that wave of feminism as much as possible, uh, but we shall get into that. So, first of all, um, we have kind of touched briefly upon um, the, the, the different waves. So if we start off, let's let's start off by talking about what do we mean by all of these different waves of feminism. First wave feminists, they were the suffragettes. So they were the ones, obviously, that, that got women the vote or at least fought to get women the vote. Um, and then there was a little bit of a period where actually not a lot happened. There were some women that got into parliament. Uh, obviously, more and more women got the vote. Um, but, well, there was the after, war, wasn't there, as well? So but yeah, after the Second World War, though, we had this massive kind of contraction in women's rights, whereby um, the men came home, and it was kind of like, thank you very much, ladies, you know, you've done a great job at, at running the factories whilst the men were away, but actually the men are back now, so, you know, get back, get back to the kitchen. kitchen. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and most of the sort of 50s and 60s, that was very much women's place. We, we have this return to these very stereotypical gender roles, didn't we, where women were expected to look after the home, not have a job once they were married, uh, raise children, perhaps do a little bit of volunteer work in the community, run the mother and baby group or, you know, join the Women's Institute or whatever. But apart from that, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't very much expected or there wasn't very much that women were allowed to do. Um, and then along came, obviously, the, the sexual revolution of the 60s, which I think, from from all accounts, took a little bit longer to reach Lancashire um, than, it, than it did to reach the, the, uh, the east coast of America. Um, so I think it was probably the late 60s, early 70s, where that mindset of, actually, you know, women are not really happy with this lot, and, and we're going to start fighting for more. And 
Jennifer, this is where you come in because this is where second wave feminism started. Uh, and this is just as you were heading off to college. So tell us about what, what happened and uh, you know, how did you experience feminism in the 70s and 80s? Okay. okay, well, I would say that I'd slightly disagree with some of your timings, actually. Okay. Uh, I think what is now referred to as second wave feminism was the wave of feminism which came out of the 1960s where there's, if you like, the slogan for was the personal is political. I mean, if there was a mantra, second wave feminism, it was the personal is political. And it was in 1963 that Betty Friedan published Feminine Mystique. And I think that is probably next that kind of really kick-started not only in America, but initially in America, this idea that women organised, that they could, that they'd done it in the past and that they could do it again. And that, as you say, the return to the home and the domestic sphere <coughs> World War was not one that women welcomed or wanted, that it was done on a, a pragmatic economic basis for the benefit of a society that wanted to So that led, I think, to a lot of sort of stereotyping of women who were fighting for women's rights along those lines as crazy women's libbers, bra burners, harridans, ugly women who couldn't get men, and in extreme cases, lesbians. And there was that sort of horrible attitude and all those sort of um, jokes, if you want to call them that. Um, but there was also, meanwhile, a really serious amount of work going on to try and get women real economic rights. And I think it's hard, even for me, I mean, I lived through it and it is hard now to remember what things were like. I mean, I hear younger women talking about, you know, the situations at home, the problems they have, um, juggling work and caring responsibilities and so on. And I wonder why is it still so bad? That is the sort of thing, oh my God, why are you still having these conversations? But actually some of the conversations we had are over some things have stopped and you forget just how bad it was actually in terms of the absolutely ingrained sexism in absolutely everything and lots of things were legal so to eventually start answering the question you asked me i went to um i, I well i came to Leeds, which is where i live i came to Leeds in 1976 to start my degree and at that time i co i coincided with the start of the sex discrimination act and that was absolutely massive and you might think that these days, whatever people may think in private, nobody would say you should pay two people different amount to do the same job because one of them's a woman and one of them's a man. That just seems absolutely ludicrous. But then it was completely accepted and the sex discrimination bill did not pass easily, did not pass without opposition, did not pass without opposition from across the political spectrum. Yeah. It was fought for. And then the implementation of it was fought for as was the implementation of the Abortion Act, the implementation of a right to contraception, basically a woman's, a woman's right to control the body. Just for looking at the dates on the bills doesn't mean that that's when they became law. Looking at what became law doesn't mean that it changed attitudes. But I would say that there was an enormous groundswell of opinion, and not just amongst you know privileged women like me. You know, I was, I was white, so I still am. I was middle class. <laughs> I, uh, and I was in higher education, so it was, in, and I had a grant. You know, I had lots of things that you know that people don't have now that um, were fantastic, and they were things that our parents had fought for for us because they came back from the Second World War. You know, there was a labour landslide at the end of the Second World War, and people said, "No, we're not going to carry on like this. We're not going back to this almost feudalism." pre-second world war so we mm. have higher education uh, mine was the first generation in my family and in lots of other families to go to university because suddenly it was possible because there was a grant um and so i had a grant i had you know a wonderful time i did some work as well oddly enough um, <laughs> occasionally <laughs> and and people of varying political persuasions were all becoming feminists i would say I would say that um, it wasn't uniform, it wasn't easy. Just because people were left-wing, it didn't mean that they weren't sexist. That there was a lot of work being done by both men and women across the spectrum for economic reform that didn't only affect women, but the feminist perspective, certainly mine as a left-wing socialist, as I was at the time, and a member of a group called Women's Voice, was that all women are oppressed. 
and mm. all men oppress women. But obviously some men are also in their turn oppressed by the system that they live in and that working class men and women have common cause on many things, but not all, because you can go into a house of old of any class and you will find a woman bearing the brunt of the caring responsibilities, the domestic administration, um, while having a career. And what second wave feminism got you actually in some circumstances was the worst of all possible worlds. Because you've got an increasing expectation that you would take up these rights to have a higher education, you would take up employment, you would try to forge a career, and you would have it all. There was a despicable woman called Shirley Conran who wrote a book, and I think it might have been called Having It All or something like that, which was that, oh yes, if you were, if you were the perfect woman, you would be the head of a merchant bank, you'd have six children, you'd wear, wear a size 10 clothes, um, you'd have a fantastic sex life. Um, and it was just like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. You know, yeah, nobody's. Well, that's still the ideal, isn't it? Who's that woman who runs uh, one of the banks now? She's got about nine children, hasn't she? And she's always immaculately turned out in designer clothes and a phenomenal figure. I can't remember her name now, um, but that's still very much the ideal that we're supposed to live up to, isn't it? Have the perfect job and family. And the answer to that, of course, is that anybody can do those things if they have a lot of money. Mm. What she what she has as substitute wives. Yeah, woman, I would frequently say, "What I need is a wife." Ironically, but you do. You need somebody to take all that off your shoulders. And men have had that for years. Men have always had that. Men have always had a woman, usually, who will look after them. You know, mm. they walk out of the house. I, I remember my boss once saying to me in a meeting, "We were we were discussing some slightly intractable case," and I said. I was thinking about this last night. I said, I was doing the ironing and I was going over this and I thought, and then I proceeded to tell him what I thought about this thing. And he came up to me after the meeting and he said, do you know, I've realised something listening to that. I said, and what? He said, well, last night you were doing the ironing. I said, yes. Well, that's <laughs> really, but yes, I was. And said, I never iron anything. I never have to think about any of that. Mm. I spent the weekend doing a bit of pottering in the garden and playing golf. Because my wife yeah. was ironing. And I thought, yeah, well, I'm lucky for you. But, you know, but at mm. least, I, you know, we was probably only in his 50s, you know, last, a penny had dropped, you know. Yes. Well, this is, Dally and I still have that now. I mean, Dally, Dally once said to me, it was a couple of years ago, because he got around to the kitchens and things did uh, change after that. But he was sat in the car, we were going somewhere and he was sat in the car waiting for me. And, and I got in the car, having raced around for half an hour, trying to sort out all the animals and get Leon packed and make sure the house didn't look like a tornado had hit it and, you know, pack up everything that, that me and a child and he would need for the day. And I got in the car completely frazzled. And I'm like, why are we always late for things? And it's that, oh my, you know, to just be able to put your shoes on and walk out of the house when you're going somewhere. It's such a luxury that women do not have, and, and it is absolutely that mindset. But anyway, we're not going to get uh, distracted on my domestic rants. <laughs> well, yeah. see, I think it's important, despite how feminism has been characterised forever, feminism is not about hating men. Feminism no. is not about thinking that men are awful creatures that you can't live with. I mean, there was a branch of feminism, I and mean, when I, certainly when I was young, there was radical feminism, radical separatist feminism, radical separatist feminism, which was basically that you just don't have anything to do with them, you know. Mm. And, and you got phrases like sleeping with the enemy and so on. Um, and I can remember a friend of mine wanting to join a women's only um, house sort of, that was run on sort of communal lines because she was a single mother of two children. And, you know, life was hard, as you can imagine. And it would have been great for her if she could have lived in this place, which advertised itself as being terribly supportive and lovely. The problem was that she had two children, one of them was a boy, and he was about eight at the time. And these women who were running this house said, oh, yes, they would love to have her and she could come. It was no problem whatsoever. But obviously, the minute the boy turned 10, he would have to leave. Oh, um, my God. And I was never able to support that view. But it no. was a view that people held. And so, you know, it did get... What a wide variety of opinion. Similarly, I cannot support any woman for a job just because she's a woman. I hated Margaret Thatcher with a passion. And if I had mm. the time, I would find a grave so I could go and dance on it. <laughs> and I don't think it was wonderful that we had a woman prime minister if it was going to be her. In the same way, I don't think it's wonderful that we've got a woman home secretary because it's pretty Patel. You know, yes. my previous comments. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
like today obviously we have social media and, and i don't put myself in an echo chamber on social media because I, I need to be able to hear and listen and see uh, what people feel about from a wide spectrum of, of opinions. In the 70s, when you walked into a pub and told somebody that you were a feminist, what was the reaction that you got? Especially if you were in Eccleston going into the Robin Hood, if you'd told them that you were a feminist, what would all of those you know middle-aged farmers, male farmers, have responded with? Well, they would have responded with um, lewd remarks about burning your bra and um, not being able to get a man. Mm. And interestingly, you, you talk about walking to a pub in the 70s. Um, it was only after the Sex Discrimination Act that you could necessarily do that. I can remember um, going, in, in fact, it would have been, yeah, it was before the Sex Discrimination Act was packed, but packed, passed, but just before. I was down in London visiting your mum and we went to the cinema in the West End. And there was a bomb scare. And so they threw us out while they searched the cinema. And next door to the cinema was a pub. So because it was me and mum, we thought, good idea. We'll just nip in here and have a quick drink while um, we, go, we wait to go back in the cinema. And they wouldn't serve us because there was an assumption that women who were not accompanied by a man were sex workers. Yes, of course. Wow. So they wouldn't serve us. And they were allowed to not serve us. That was perfectly legal. And so when that, you know, when you say you're, you're, um, you, you coincided with those acts coming into law and, and, you know, the law was changing and the law, if you think about the law of this country, that, that would, they were quite a fundamental shift for British law. But, you know, obviously uh, public opinion and, and culture takes a, a time to respond to that, doesn't it? So how, I mean, was there a sea change? Did women suddenly go? Well, now we've got this act, we are going to go into pubs. Or do you think it was still quite a fringe, you know, fringe uh, organisation of women? <laughs> I think to be as extreme as I was was a bit unusual. Or certainly I found my, you know, I found my tribe, as people do. Mm, yeah. But I certainly think there was an attitude of, well, I'm allowed to do this. And people, it, gave, it gave people that bit more bottle because you knew that they couldn't refuse to serve you. You knew that they couldn't refuse to sell you that house. They couldn't refuse to give you a mortgage. You know, all of these things that you wanted to do. It was no longer legal for them to refuse you. So you it wasn't just you trying it on or hoping mm. it be nice to you. you had I wonder... Oh, sorry. No, go on. I do wonder if the change that's come... Um, I feel like there's a lot more, or I feel like there's a lot of fear associated with being a woman at the moment, and with particularly thinking about cases like Sarah Everard and the backlash that came against women after that, when you know not all men was trending and things like that. Um, and I do wonder if now that we can't, if if it's kind of been pushed underground a little bit because it's not legal to openly discriminate against the woman, but you know, nobody is stopping you from groping them in the street or, you know, crimes against women have not decreased. Um, harassment has not decreased. And I wonder if it has just kind of pushed it underground slightly. I think it's become the sort of thing that um, you wouldn't admit thinking if you were in um, the kind of company where people would jump on you like a ton of bricks. But there'll be a company where it's perfectly acceptable in the, in the same way that, you know, lots of areas people can express racist views and nobody challenges them i mean the sarah everard thing is interesting because obviously I, I i live in leeds and i lived in leeds throughout the time that the yorkshire ripper was killing women and i have visceral memories of that time and the reason his recent death speaking of dancing on grades um was um brought an awful lot of stuff back for an awful lot of people. I mean, you've seen it, it was on social media. And, and I heard conversations, I was, because, because we had lockdown, I was standing in queues quite a lot. And I heard conversations and I was quite shocked really at the tone of them because I, you know, it's complete strangers that I was just, eavesdropping on. The number of people who still framed it in terms of he killed prostitutes, yes. as if somehow his victims were less worthy of life. Mm. It was horrific, um, but I also I remember I remember the reclaim the night demonstrations. Mm. I remember the hostility shown to those by the police. I remember the effective curfew of women 
and the absolute impossibility of getting people to see that they were putting the curfew on the wrong people. Yes. You know, the people who were likely to be the ripper were men, but it was mm. men who were locked up. But we were absolutely terrified. I mean, you know, make no mo make no bones about it. You know, buying time, and I understand why women are still scared to walk the streets because you know random acts of violence happen to women. Yeah. And none of the legislation that changed the economic framework, none of the employment legislation that changed the economic framework for for the working class generally none of it said we have to do something about attitudes none of it said not only can we not refuse education to women but while we are educating young people we need to do something about their attitudes and so you get i mean it, it did there was an awful lot of work done in schools because of course when all this came in girls did cookery and boys did woodwork and ne'er the twain shall me yeah, and, and you know what, that was still a bit the case when I was at school. Yeah, we, got, we still got separated out and boys went and did uh, wood tech or design tech. Design or tech, we, we had to do textiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't change. And that took a long time because, of course, you know, you don't just suddenly get a clean slate and change a, a, a syllabus. And even if you do, you don't suddenly get a whole new load of teachers who've changed their thinking overnight. I mean, mm -hmm. even... even Sorry, I think, you know, four years ago, five years ago, I was working in a school helping as a careers advisor, getting children onto vocational courses and boys were offered motor vehicle and something else, butch, and girls were offered cooking or hairdressing. And and I said to one of the teachers, why, why aren't they allowed to swap? And he was like, why would they be allowed to swap? Yes. And, you know, that was five years ago in a secondary in a secondary school and it's still even if it's legal for them to do it and they're allowed to the attitude is what on earth would a girl want to do with a car well there was that campaign a few uh, it was only a couple of years ago actually wasn't it when um the uh, a school i think it was down south somewhere had said something about a school uniform that girls weren't allowed to wear trousers i think um, and so the boys all went in, in in skirts and said, you know, this is this is double standard. If, if you know, if 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 girls have access to only a limited amount of uniform, then then boys should only have access to limited amount of uniform. And and still, you know, that was still a shocking thing. I remember reading sort of um, uh, opinion pieces in the newspaper and stuff saying, well, why why would girls want to wear trousers when they've got skirts or you know, best they've got colours? Why on earth would they want trousers? Mm -hmm. Interesting. How? How? Again, how are we still having this conversation? It's crackers. Um, it but I think I do think that the fact that we are having this conversation because is is progress. Because when I was little, you wouldn't have had this conversation. You know, we were brought up in a feminist environment for the most part, and and but still, we weren't having these conversations. It was just you know, this is what you did. This is what you wore. These are the toys that you play with. Not necessarily for us, but certainly our peers. Mm. Whereas now, all over social media, and in re not so much in reality, but I see it in kind of the wider world, not in the little village that I live in, that people are questioning these social norms. And I think as long as you know our generation and Chloe's generation are raising boys and girls who will question that those gender stereotypes and that subjugation of women and, and toxic masculinity. I think that in itself is progress. So this is one of the things I want to talk about because you think about, so the, the second wave feminism that we had in the 70s, you know, they were active. They were really very active. And, and we touched on this when we talked last week. You know, those those second wave feminists and, you know, the men that, that supported them settled down and had children in the 80s. And they were, you know, me and Hannah, our generation then, that were growing up in the 90s. And, and feminism at that point, yes, we had third wave feminism and it was all about girl power and it was all about Gail Porter flashing a bum across the House of Parliament, which I know now she didn't consent to. But it was very much the, 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 the third wave feminism was, was really all about um, we can be naked if we want to, and it's empowering. And it, and it was really quite problematic because it was all about the male gaze. And there was a lot of apologizing. And I've been thinking about this over the weekend because when we were saying like, why, why didn't those feminists of the 70s instill that, that very strong feminism in their children? I was thinking about how mum raised us and you're absolutely right. So we had, 
I remember, you know, always wearing boys' clothes, dungarees, corduroy trousers, Doc Martens, you know, never particularly girly. I wasn't allowed girly toys. I remember going around to my friend's house and she had a Barbie and a Cindy doll's house. And I went home and I said to mom, why can't I have a Cindy doll's house? And she just said, I don't want you to have one. But she didn't tell me why. And, and whenever Leon and I have had these conversations, Leon's 11 now. I mean, he, he rolls his eyes at me, but he gets a full-on feminist rant every time about the reasons why he had a pink trike or he had little baby Jack or why he's not allowed to just have, you know, he can have a he can have a toolkit, but he has to have a, a dolly and an ironing board as well as his toolkit. And he gets that fully explained to him and we have really in-depth conversations about, uh, you know, the patriarchy and how damaging it is to boys as much as girls. But mum never did. Mum would just always said to us, because, that's it, because. And there was very little explanation. It's interesting, though, Rachel, because I think like, the will of the child comes into it as well. Because I've stood with Leon in toy shops where he said to Naya, the girls' toys are over there and I'm going over here to look at the boys' toys. So, you know, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. And Naya, as much as she gets it, she's obviously coming to it from the other side. As soon as she went out into the wider world, as soon as she went into nursery, I remember she came home one day from nursery and went, Mummy, I'm a beautiful princess and so are you. I was like, ah! And it just... And her know, bedroom looks like, a, a, you know, a princess unicorn has exploded in it. on it, exactly. So oh, there's we, an external influence, but you have yeah. to give them the skills to counteract that. And I think yeah. I think the whole ladder culture and the, you know, we can wear push-up bras because we're empowered women, I think that is possibly a natural progression of what our kind of, you know, feminist mothers and stuff were teaching us. It was just slightly misguided. But you see it now. I mean, look at that backlash against Russell brand is that his name for saying all that stuff about cardi b's video saying it's not empowerment because you're still the subject to the male gaze and everyone went mental at him oh you don't understand mm. it and this is empowerment and she can get her tits out in her music video if she wants to because she's an empowered woman and it's, yeah. it's just it's just further it's just further brainwashing it's just fucking mm. patriarchal bollocks god <laughs> <laughs> yeah jennifer <laughs> I mean, it is interesting because what you what you tried to what I thought you would try to do as you raised your children as a feminist was to um, tell girls they could do what they want. Mm. And I know I never had the upbringing of a boy. I mean, by the time I had a stepson, I mean, you, you know, he was cooked. Um, <laughs> very too. Um, but uh, hopefully, it was to tell boys that you know they don't have a load of God given rights to uh, to rule the roost. Mm. The thing about and the thing about non-gender specific toys is yes you know you know it takes a village to raise a child and all those sort of cliches so you're not the only person with an input and there does seem to be you know some difference I mean there are there have been studies done on this there is some difference in the way girls play and the way boys play because girls make different kind of friendship groups they, they do things earlier and they tend to develop faster but they also develop in different ways and and it's interesting to know how much of that is innate and and an entire different discussion about how girls develop uh, their play methods and what they want to use to do their play. But boys do lots of imaginative play, but they may do it in a different way. Mm. The thing about, as they get older, this business of empowering, you see, because the first thing I would say to a girl is you ought to be able to walk down the street, start naked and not get raped. Obviously. Yes. But why would you want to walk down the street, start naked, unless it's very, very hot? You know, um, and you know, do you want to force your feet into pointy toe shoes with a six inch heel that you can't walk on? You know, and do that pony walk that you see mm. girls doing between books. I find it absolutely hilarious actually watching girls walk in very high heels, but that's just me. Um, I've never been able to do it. I won't be able to be fair. No, I can't do it. We were talking about that the other day. I can't do it at all. There's, there's why do you feel empowered by making yourself look like? the object of a male fantasy. Because mm. if we assume that pornography, which is made for men, presents women in a way that men find satisfying to some fantasy or other, then if women choose to dress like that, why are they doing it? Because mm. if they are not trying to do it to attract men, if they are not doing it for the satisfaction of men looking at them, if they are doing it for their own satisfaction, then in what way do they get satisfaction? Is it because you're sort of, you know, like, you're tormenting them. You're sort of dangling something in front of them and saying, you want this, don't you? You want this, don't you? You can't have it. I think 
there might be some pleasure in that. <laughs> um, but Or is it just that they need, despite everything, and despite the fact that they've been told in some way that they have to own this, that they have to be in charge of it, that they are empowered, that actually what they are still doing is seeking male approval. Yes. Mm. Girls give other girls approval for the same thing, not because they find it attractive themselves, but because a girl has made herself satisfactorily attractive to men. Mm. And I think that's hugely problematic. I do actually think it now happens to some extent with boys. I think this is one bit where there's been a bit of levelling down. I think yeah. there's a lot of pressure on boys about what they look like. Absolutely. This yeah. nonsense and... Height. Know. Men get it about the height, don't it's they? About height. They get it about hair loss. Mm. And so they do work out things and they have spray tans and they dye their hair and all those things. And that peacocking for the opposite sex or for the sex that you are attracted to, whatever it may be, I think it's absolutely fine because all nature does that. It's like, oh, you know, it's that finding a mate thing. Whether yeah. you're a power bird, you know, putting pebbles in a pretty shape around the front of your nest or your <laughs> highlights done, you're doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I might try the pebbles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I and understood that what you really want is somebody who can make wardrobes. About <laughs> 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 why why do women feel empowered by turning themselves into some sort of sexual fantasy for somebody else? I don't know, and I'm not sure that they really do feel empowered by it. I mean, it's nice to have praise, so. And I know that girls get for a night out with other girls as well, and they may be completely unwilling to engage with men whatsoever. I mean, yeah. I do it even at my advanced age when I'm going out yeah. with my girlfriends. I, I put the slap on and I do my hair and I get dressed up and I go out. And if my friends say you look nice, I say thanks. So do you, you know, and all that, and we all feel good. Which is nice. We've, we've somewhere along the line we've imbibed some idea of what is female attractiveness, what is female, you know, exactly. It's and like I think that, but it, it is that point of who are you doing it for? And, and I mean, Hannah put a great post in the group the other day about the the male gaze and the difference between them in in the um, what's her name, Hannah, the uh, Harley Quinn character. So when there was a male director who made the film, obviously you know she had big pigtails and she had makeup and blah blah. And then the film was made with a female director, and the differences were subtle in the way her her character was dressed and, and the way that she looked and the way her hair was done but there was a difference there was a noticeable difference between that male gaze and that female gaze and it's subtle and I think that's the problem isn't it when you are saying like when you're thinking talking about you know girls taking the clothes off in the loaded photo shoot or whatever you know if they're doing it for women and then yeah maybe it is empowering but if you're doing it for men you're still just being uh, uh, subjected and an object and if you're doing it in loaded magazine that's a men's magazine so you're not empowered you're still doing it for the male case um, well, i'm doing it because the kardashians do it that is for the male yeah. Gaze, right? yeah and i think you know the whole thing about shaving legs and, and shaving body hair and stuff you hear the argument so often, oh, it's just more comfortable. Is it fuck? There's something, mm. there is something delicious about sliding sh like smooth legs into new sheets, but that's it. Like, you know, it's not worth doing all that for one week of the of the year when you change your bed sheets. Again, when we talk about, you know, how does this come in? So, you know, I I shave my armpits through summer a lot of the time but through winter i don't and and sometimes i you know i don't even in summer it's one of those things that i'll do it when i think it looks starting to look untidy and then i'll leave it for a bit but i hadn't done it for months and and leon i was getting dressed in the bedroom and leon said he said you really need to shave those armpits and i was like why where where you know i've never told him that where on earth have you got this from that women should be completely hairless mm. and you know, to, i mean obviously i know you know he's he's of the youtube generation i'm not naive enough to think that he hasn't seen any porn in his life yet i, I know he will have seen that 
But still, you know, that's that's such an innate idea to be fixed in the idea of a child in the mind of a child who's in year six at primary school. Um, Chloe, I want to come on to you because I'm I'm conscious you've sat there for 40 minutes not saying a word. Um, <laughs> so you have grown up, obviously, we've talked about second and third wave feminism, and mine and Hannah's was this kind of girl power, get your tits off and loaded kind of feminism uh, that we were grown up that we were brought up with. You were at the tail end of that, obviously, in the noughties, and now you're in fourth wave feminism. What has the feminist movement meant to you? Has it been any part of your life whatsoever as a girl growing up in Bake Up? Um, um, I would say that I was around... So, obviously, like as a child, my mum drilled it into me about the suffragettes and why we have to vote and, and all that kind of stuff. But then mm -hmm. I'd say the third wave kind of just passed that isn't something I'd ever really known a lot about until recently. Um, you have and then, sisters though, don't you, Chloe? So did they, were they Spice Girls fans? Was there a lot of screaming girl power going on? Did they have a wonder bra? Yeah. Um, Spice Girls, yeah, but it were like, they were bigger like boys own fans and right. like street boys, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my kind of introduction to fourth wave feminism, as I see it now, I didn't know at the time, um, was probably like the, I was, I'd say it was, I were a teenager, I were at school and it was probably like the free the nipple movement, mm -hmm. um, which was, fourth wave feminism is very much technology, technology driven, like we would probably wouldn't have got as far without technology mm -hmm. when it comes to like the Me Too movement and stuff. Um, but yeah, I remember this free the nipple movement trending massively on Twitter and thinking, and like, what, what the hell is this? It was like a movement um, because, well, like part of it was because, you know, a man could put a picture on Instagram with a nipple out and it's fine. But if a woman's, I think it stemmed, I think there were art and it were a woman's nipple and it were removed immediately. And, you know, it was, it was that, like one rough one and one rough another. And then there were kind of different elements to it, whereas some people were fighting for, like, in America, the certain states where it is illegal for a woman to breastfeed in public yeah. because she's mean, it means you're getting a nipple out. Um, and then it was, you know, like, why should why can I not take my top off on the beach without it being a big deal, like, with men staring and stuff like that? But a man can walk around in budgie smugglers and nice. with the confidence, like, all the confidence in the world. So there was this movement about that, um, and I started kind of following that movement. And from there, I think it kind of snowballed suddenly. I'd say from around like 2013 up until now, it's just got like, I think girls of my age have realised that there's so much they can do online. Mm. You know, like they don't have to go to London and stand outside the House of Parliaments and with pitchforks and the bras on show like, I know that's not what happened. Well, that's what probably what they envision <laughs> you're supposed to do. Like they can they can sign petitions online and they can do so they can make a change from the bed with the phone in the hand. Um, but changing like free the nipple, you still can't put nipples on social media platforms. And you know, hashtag Me Too was massive, but we're mm. still being groped inappropriately. And yeah, oh, well, I think. Um, the as you mentioned earlier on the Sarah Everard case, I think that like for me, like I was kind of aware of feminism and, and all this kind of stuff, and especially from being a part of Grow Traffic for the past two years, um, more so. Um, but I think recently with the Sarah Everard murder and how immediately people took to Twitter, oh why was she walking on her own? And you know. And that suddenly girls my age and younger was turning around and thinking like, shit, like I can't walk my dog without fear of getting, and they were suddenly just like, they'd always done it subconsciously. It's like I've held my keys in my hand every time I leave my car. Like, but, but we'd never realized that it was wrong that we have to do that. Like, and it, it was yeah. as if there was just this awakening of girls all over thinking fucking hell, I can't believe that I've been doing this for so long out of fear, like that shouldn't be, the case whatsoever um and I actually when I it was on the news and I was talking to more about it and she said um there was the same anger when the Yorkshire Ripper were going because she lived in Lancashire and they were told to stay inside mm. like 
and that was wasn't really close to where it was but she said there was that anger that why should we have to stay in yeah when we're not the ones going out and murdering um so i think with the from the Sarah Everard murder that's kind of been re-established and and I know there's people fighting now but I also think aside from technology like driving these movements I also think um, a huge element of our fourth wave feminism is um, equal representation you know for trans and the LBTGQ community and women of colour in particular Um, and I think that is an important aspect of fourth wave feminism. It's not just women fighting for women anymore for our rights. It's it's women fighting for everyone. Yeah. Go on, Hannah. I was going to say that I was reading it like the other day that that came out of third wave fem- feminism. The idea of intersectionality being fully embedded, and I know that there are some still some branches of feminism that don't practice intersectionality, and you know, shooting the shit is not a place for that. Um, but I think that is that is something amazing that's come out of the fourth wave of feminism, that there is more representation of all women. And I do feel like we are now fighting for all women, um, regardless of background um, and race and, you know, privilege levels and everything. Yeah. And there's also um, problems that women are dealing with today that that none of the other ways have ever dealt with you know like revenge porn and yeah. it seems like there's more ways now that men can fucking shit all over us um mm. because of technology um so there is other you know problems that that we're facing and fighting um and another thing that i've seen coming to light in the and i don't know if any of you have noticed this um but in the past mainly like months i'd say not even years like in the past months there's been women are suddenly saying like why is women like in healthcare there's a big problem with women not being taken seriously Mm -hmm. um and it seems in the past few months to have kind of like i've seen article after article popping up um and and people just don't seem to be taking women seriously and i think the main one this week um the i can't remember her name the one of the news reporters off bbc had had the coil fitted and she said like yeah, that's one. Yeah, um, she had said the the pain was like nothing she'd ever felt before, and none of that was explained to her. Mm. And, I and think they, that they've just seen. I don't know if any of you saw um, uh, Davina McCall's do- documentary on the menopause that was on Channel Four a few weeks ago. Um, but there does seem to be. I mean, she said she was in a, a, a kind of mid to late forties when she started going through the menopause, and and this was kind of four or five years ago. And she said at the time she would never have dreamt of talking to her friends about it. And, and even in that that kind of three, four, five years, um, you know, there does seem to have been a sea change where women seem now that they are able to to say, actually, do you know what I've been going through? There was I always reminds me of um, Victoria Wood when she's talking about, you know, if something went on down down below, you kept your option, turn the wireless up. And that kind of attitude which we women have very much lived with, you know, you just don't talk about it, even to your best friends, all of a sudden seems to be being washed away. And I think that, you know, that's absolutely brilliant as somebody who yeah. shares everything about my life. And that and has come out of fourth wave as well. I think that this rise of technology, that, that, you know, it is normal. I mean, even thinking about periods, like we just, we, like me and my friends, we never talked about periods. Whereas Rachel, she never fucking shuts up about it. And like, you know, we do just kind of casually talk about it. So, you know, you realise, actually, I'm not a freak. This is not really yeah. unusual. And it's, yeah. and I know a lot of my friends who have got daughters you know they're all kind of a similar age and we are starting to have those conversations with our daughters about periods and with our husbands who are having conversations with their daughters and you know mm-hmm. just trying to make it so it's a lot it's filtering down a lot more a lot earlier about what is normal and what you know what is acceptable and that there's no reason to be nervous about it or whatever and that just wasn't a thing when we were kids and I think I that is technology. I do remember though, so you're absolutely right. I, I have no filter and no shame and I will talk to my friends about absolutely anything. But I, I very only recently posted on on my Facebook page about the fact that I was having really heavy periods and issues with my coil and my, my um, 
I was going to say constipation. I meant contraception. Um, <laughs> right. I, I yeah, I was having that as well with the Russian challenge. Uh, I honestly wouldn't have put that up whilst I might have talked about it. I wouldn't have put that on social media until recently. And again, you know, I was I was quite clean about the way that I spoke about it. I, I don't know, Jennifer, would, would you, uh, do you and your friends have these conversations to the same level or is there still some stigma about it with, with your generation? No, we talk about all this stuff and I've done for years. Um, what I was going to say, there's, there's a thing about, uh, it, it, it is answering that question, but it's also picking up on something Chloe said about how so much is on social media now and that you can be active by what you post on social media and what you share and so on. And I understand that and I know it's true. I'm not saying that's not, but I am a bit concerned. Uh, there, there has to be some action other than just that, because otherwise there is a danger that you're only going to preach to the choir. Mm, yeah. Certainly on the menopause, for instance, um, you know, yes, I know Fina McCall made that program. I didn't actually see it. Um, but when I was still working, but part of my feminism is part of my socialism, is part, socialism is part of my trade unionism. And I think there's a lack of a political perspective on a lot of feminism now, from my point of view. Yes. Yeah. Because I was a trade unionist, I was, I was on the executive of my union for many years. And we have been, had been running a campaign to have the menopause taken seriously for the last 10 years. Now, there wasn't anything on social media about it because it wasn't a social media campaign. What it was was a trade union activity in conjunction with other trade unions. And it's part of what the TUC do as well. Mm. So women who are having the menopause, going through the menopause with all these assorted various problems, which some of which are short term, some of which are much longer term, actually, mm. in different ways, should be taken seriously at work and that workplaces should have a policy on it. And this is kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning, that the 1976 Sex Discrimination Act is a particularly non-sexy piece of legislation that just does some nuts and bolts stuff and attempt to change attitudes. But if it's the law, then it has to, because... Mm. You know, I mean, for instance, when when one of I've got a friend who is exactly one week older than me, and when we were going through the menopause, we were doing it together in the same office, and I she suffered more than I did from hot flushes, and I always knew when Carol was having a hot flush because she would stand up from her desk, rip off a cardigan, open the window, and turn on a fan. <laughs> anything like and I don't you know whether it was a man or a, a woman or whoever said anything like I'm cold would say something like well, I fucking wish I was <laughs> and take off another layer <laughs> so, so yeah, but, but this is what I mean it's not just about how do we change the consciousness of people to so that they feel confident to talk about this because you know people don't talk about body functions will they I mean you know people die of bowel cancer because they won't go to the doctors and say that their mm. bowel habit is bizarre men die of prostate yeah. they won't let a doctor put his finger up the bum um mm. you know there's a lot that that's not that's probably another um, it is. I mean yeah. you are right but I mean at the end of the um, at the end of that uh, Davina McCall documentary uh, she was saying about the police so the police now have a policy where if you are a woman going through the menopause you are allowed to uh, reduce your hours, go part time for a bit, of work, uh, do various things um, akin to uh, women who are uh, have young children, um, so that they can adjust their work life according to their menopausal symptoms, but stay in the workplace. Now, you know, she was saying that's great, and that and the Metropolitan Police should be applauded for that, but. Whilst it is only a policy, whilst there's no legal requirement to do it, you know, obviously it'll just be left to these a few nice employers that, that deign to do this, and and the rest of them will lose kind of women over fifty from the workplace. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I can see on one hand talking about it is the first step and if we are able to talk about it and if we are able to share it on social media and if we are able to reduce the stigma from these things then we're on the right path to sorting it out but without that next stage without some sort of political movement you know it's not going to be changed it's not going to be converted into law and that does seem to be what's lacking whilst we have all of this me, me, me too movement and we have all of these campaigns on social media 
they don't seem to be being picked up. We have we have more female um, politicians in in power now than we've had for a very long time, and yet women's issues are not at the forefront. You know, Pretty Patel is not out there fighting for the rights of women, is she? Far from it, in fact. Um, no, and this is what I mean by there's a lack of, in, in my opinion, there is a lack of uh, political analysis of all of this and a, um, a planned activity side of this. Because if you have a consciousness that something needs to be done in the workplace to protect the rights of women while they go through the menopause, then you need to start taking action about that and you need to organise in the workplace as well as on social media. Or you may organise in the workplace via social media part, partly. You get yeah. Together. And then you start putting pressure on them. And if you're part of a trade union movement, then you have strength in numbers. And if you have strength in numbers and you have organisation, then what you have is a route into yeah. parliamentary action, which is how you get something like the Sex Discrimination Act. It's how you get something like the Equal Pay Act. You know, the Equal Pay Act wasn't an accident. It was the Dagenham women. Yes. Dagenham women went on strike and said, fuck this, we are not being paid less than the men. Yeah. Barbara Castle, who, because you know, you can be cynical about it and say she saw political capital in it, but it was Barbara Castle who mm. got the Equal Pay Act. That didn't come about because everybody said, "Oh, it's not fair. This is it, really." I don't like it. No, I don't like it either. They didn't sit about like we're doing now and agree that they didn't like it. I mean, they obviously mm. they did do that, but they yes, didn't yes. But then they did something about it, and that's that. I mean, Alicia's made a point about you know, whilst whilst we are as women are all sitting around on social media or in our knitting groups or whatever discussing this, you know, we're kind of safe, aren't we? It's when we break out into the street, you know, the women who were protesting for the Sarah Everard um, were 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 arrested and were kettled and all the rest of it, and and that is, you know, we're we're safe, we're still safe as women if we're just online talking about it or we're just in our little groups. It's when we we break out, and and this again. We're back to this point of you know where we were saying the other day when i went to university there was very little political action at all let alone feminist political action and if we don't have women organizing and women you know i think that the, the women's equality party is at one of its lowest memberships it's had for a very long time and you know women groups like like the sir optimists like the women's institute you know membership is falling and and we have got to as women organize and we've got to get back out on the streets like the women of the 70s did and when they did you know green and common in the 80s as well we've got to start thinking that because we're all empowered and posting about our periods and we've got a nice hashtag on Twitter, that's not equality and that's not freedom and we're not going to move forward. So um, we've got to get the, the Molotovs out and march on Fuck yeah. Do you yeah. think that like we've just been absolutely sleepwalking into being brainwashed that like, you know, we have we have equality because we can suck the fat out of our asses and put it into our lips and that's empowerment yeah. and like let's all like we just start like like do you feel like the, the patriarchy is just going look over there girls and we're all going oh amazing yeah. and not actually doing anything I do yeah. think that, but I also think, I think they're doing it wider than that. I mean, I know we're here to talk about feminism, but I think there's a wider thing than that going on. And I think, you know, it's the whole working class is being told, um, you know, nothing to see here. This is politics. This is for grown-ups. Yeah, yeah. So, the violence starting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at those immigrants over there. Um, yes. Somebody else. And the new bill, the new police bill, which is going to outlaw demonstration, is going to make everybody a keyboard warrior. And that is absolutely fine. Because I don't mm. think anybody is frightened, really, of a, you know, a hashtag. Because it's not going to fundamentally change anything. It's not going to get people out voting. It's not going to get people be, uh, doing acts of civil disobedience. You know, when Tony Blair, who wants to be tried as a war criminal, mm -hmm. took us into um, the Gulf War, the, 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 the Iraq War, People came out in absolutely massive numbers, a huge cross-section of people, and they showed by being there, boots on the ground, they showed this is not something we're prepared to put up with. The poll tax, when Thatcher brought in the poll tax, people just said, here is a massive demonstration against it, and I'm not fucking paying it. And people yeah. to go to prison for it. You know, people... If you, if you want to take any control off the people who have the control, and they are the people with money, then you mm -hmm. have to do something. You have to get and out. Just agreeing yeah. that it's horrible is not the answer, which is why mm -hmm. I'm not, and as feminists, if you want to be able to go, I mean, God forbid you have the need, but you will have the need. If you want to be able to go to a vigil on Clapham Common, 
you've got to resist this bill. This bill yes. is not only aimed at feminists, it's aimed at everybody who doesn't like the current structures. Mm. It's going to, to uh, weigh your right to protest. I yeah. also, if you want things in your workplace to change, if you want to be taken seriously in your workplace, then you need to unionise. And I cannot believe that the argument for unionisation that was won in the 19th century you know, one of the things that makes me so proud to be a Lancastrian, the Chartists and all that sort of stuff, that we are now seeing the biggest drop in trade union membership since yeah. then, really. Yeah. Why? Why? Because, oh, people are bored by politics. People don't think it matters to them. People don't work like that anymore. Mm. No, they don't. What they have are zero-hours contracts. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and then what happens is that they are they are ignored, they are disin they disillusioned, they're disenfranchised, they're disenchanted, and we end up with, with Brexit and Trump and all the rest of it. But but yeah, we we are we are out of time, I'm afraid. I have one final question for each of you. Um what do we need to do? We have just sort of answered it, but you know, practically speaking, right now. What do we women need to do to make sure our daughters and our granddaughters are not having this conversation in another 40 years? Hannah first. <laughs> I am going to go and join uh, some sort of organisation and become a fee-paying member and um, actually get involved because I fucking talk about it an awful lot, but I don't actually do it. And yeah, Lizzie and I are going to go and get some Molotovs and... <laughs> Looking <laughs> through some windows. <laughs> yeah, are you are you a member of any organisations, organization, Hannah? Of any anything at all? No, I'm not. No. no. Yeah. Well, yes. you know, also, like I'm doing sh like shooting the shit. I feel like is a little bit of philanthropy. <laughs> yeah, we need yeah, to take shooting the shit to the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, that's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Chloe, you're next. What 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 are you gonna do? Um, go and catch babies. Go and catch babies. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably similar to Hannah. I think, obviously, because I've been I'm going into midwifery, and that's something I've been I've joined groups lately. I see a lot more of that now. You know, whereas before then. I didn't know that these such groups existed and that you could go on, you know, and that there was someone who'd say, this is where we're going to fight and this is what we're going to fight for and these are the problems that we need to address. And but, like this time last year, I didn't have a clue that that were a thing. Um, so, yeah, just probably educate myself a little bit more on how, how, like, you know, what places there are that I can help. And I think, I think as well, like women, girls, people, humans, my age, um, probably should, you know, look past Instagram and and get yeah get off their asses. <laughs> yeah, social media is a powerful tool. It's a very very powerful tool, but you need to use that to mobilise what is happening offline. Because if it's purely online, it's not going to do anything. Uh, Jen. What what is your advice or what is your plan? How are we going to stop this conversation happening in another forty years? Well, you know, you, to carry on being so angry, to carry on, you know, being active, to carry on and in your own personal, just to just to make an informed arrangement with the people you share your life with, mm. you know. Not to, to to challenge what you, whether you're doing what you're doing because you're falling into gender stereotypes or whether you're doing it because it just makes more sense. You know, I'm doing this because I'm good at it. He's doing that because he's good at it. If that's for it, or he likes it, or I like doing this, or whatever, that's fine. Make a friend and still be that line. But really, I think um, organize and be active. Mm. I think. Yeah, and nothing more frightening than well-organized women acting together. Yes. I mean, what a terrifying force they are. I mean. Yes. <laughs> or even disorganized women. Um, we've, uh, we've been to disorganized women and uh, we've caused some chaos and frightened some people. <laughs> that should be the motto for shooting the shit. Disorganized women working, fighting together. Yeah, we might not turn up on time, but we'll fucking turn up. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly the kind of self-deprecating stuff that's the problem, isn't it? Because yeah. 
or you wouldn't be running a business, would you? <laughs> I mean, organised women manage to get themselves and their children dressed every day and in the right place to do a reasonable amount of work. You know, mm. come home and there's food in the house and the heat's on. That's yeah. That's no mean feat. I do think as well, you know, yes, if you have the time and the means and the ability and the energy to mobilise, great. But if you can't, you know, if all you can do is keep your head above water with your job and your kids and your life and, your, you know, all the rest of it that you've got to do, just have a conversation with another woman or another man, you know, a man. And, and just, just oh, yeah, and your children. And just open dialogue and challenge, just challenge Things that people say to you that doesn't feel right. Don't just let things slide. If it's safe mm -hmm. and you feel comfortable to do so, don't let people just bullshit their way through and say sexist shit to you. You know, challenge it and have the courage to challenge it and know that when you've done it, if it doesn't go how you planned, we're all there supporting you. Come and tell yeah, us about absolutely. it. Yeah. Uh, and I am going to I'm going to mention Mr. Optimist because we are one of the few women's uh, global women's organizations with a seat at the United Nations and on the um, uh, the uh, uh, CSW, which I can't remember now what CSW is. Um, but we, we can affect real change. So I am a star optimist and I do little things in the community, but I do bigger things on, uh, globally as well. Um, I am a member of a trade union. I am a member of the Labour Party. I might, I might join the uh, Women's Equality Party, but, you know, don't. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens there. But, yeah, absolutely. We, I need to stop using the fact that I am a member of those organisations and have been for a long time and I pay my dues as an excuse to let me get away with thinking I'm doing something because just being a member and paying money to those organisations is absolutely nothing. Rachel, you, actually... you are doing something. Don't beat yourself up. You do the social media for your Seroptimist branch. You run this every fortnight. You are... you. At the MD, doing you're doing fucking loads, Rachel. We are doing lots, and on that note, uh, but there's always more, and we can be more active, and we're going to go and light some Molotovs. So, thank you very much to everybody who's watched, everybody that will be watching in the future. If you would like to leave us a comment, please do. We keep monitoring the chat, and we're always happy to talk. Um, please tell your friends and share it, share it on LinkedIn, share it in other Facebook groups. Um, and thank you very much to Chloe, Hannah, Jennifer. Um, we will be thank back you. in time and me, thank you to me we'll be back in two weeks time Wait. bye bye